Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Um, and just a quick summary, uh, the book of Genesis, it begins with God creating, you know, everything. Creating a place for humanity, he creates the heavens, the earth, uh, and we talked about the, when it says the foundations of the earth, it created gravity, he created light, uh, he created the earth, he created the animals, he created the trees, the food, the fruits, uh, everything that was good for us, except for Brussels sprouts, those came after the fall, so those are bad, but everything else God created for us, uh, an, a place for us, and then after that he created humanity, he created Adam and Eve, and he created this plan that he had for humanity, and he told them, hey, you guys go out and populate the earth, uh, and the goal was to create communities all over the earth or where God's name is known, where God's will is done, which is basically that we love God, uh, and we love one another, and that we love people, whether they're like us or different than us, that we're sharing God's love everywhere you go on the earth. That was the plan, but it didn't work out that way, because then when you get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, that was just Genesis 1, 2, 3. When you get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, then you experience what God calls sin or separation from God, which is literally death. Uh, but even though they didn't die physically, uh, the spiritual connection uh, that humanity had with God died. And when, by the time you get to chapter 5, all you get is over and over this increasing um, level of evil and hatred towards one another. People looking at one another instead of, hey, I'm looking at you, and I love you, and I want to show God's love to you. Uh, it ended with, we're looking at you, and I hate you, and if I kill you, who cares? I have the right to. That's, that's what you get to, Genesis 5. Uh, and then you get to the whole, you know, God rescues humanity through uh, the situation with Noah's Ark. Uh, and in the same way that if you go to a doctor and they say, hey, we see this, this cancer is spreading throughout your body, their first thing is they're going to cut out all the bad in order to save what's good. And that's what we see with the art. God says, hey, I'm going to cut out all the bad people in order to save what's good. Here is the problem. We only found eight good people uh, on what could have been anywhere from a few thousand to tens of thousands to just under a million or so people uh, who populated the planet in the few hundred years you get until you get to the flood. Then after the flood, God says, hey, let's start this thing over. Uh, but I have a different plan. It's the same goal, but a different plan. Instead of just sending you guys out, he said, I'm going to take one man and his family, and through him, Abraham, I'm going to create a group of people who know me and who are known by me. I'm going to spend time one-on-one -on -one, uh, training them. Any, anyone ever have a tutor, like, growing up in class, math, English, whatever? You're the only one. I had one uh, for a short period of time, and that's because, um, I shouldn't say this as a pastor, but in third grade, got kicked out of school because I didn't know my multiplication tables. And for me, when I got home, I was like, yay, no more school for me. My mother had a different view. Uh, so I had a tutor for a couple of weeks. And the one thing that they impressed upon me was, hey, if you pay attention in class, and because uh, they're only going to test you on what they know. So if you pay attention in class, which I had not been, third grade, who pays attention? But if you pay attention in class um, and you do the homework, which the homework was really easy, but if you do the homework, everything else is cake. And so I got one-on-one -on -one time with a tutor who said, hey, if you're trying to learn your multiplication tables, here's the principles that are going to help you. 
and went back. Never had another problem in school since then because of that one-on-one time. And that's what God did with Abraham. He took Abraham and his wife Sarah one-on-one with them, said, I'm going to create through you a line through which I'm going to bring the Messiah, who we know later on is Jesus Christ. But I'm going to spend time with you and your family. Then I'm going to spend time with their descendants and their descendants. So God became like a personal tutor in showing that family, hey, here's how you connect with me. Here's how you share and show, you know, my love to other people. And then by the time you get to Abraham, and then Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which later became the 12 tribes of Israel. But then God says, here's this one son, Joseph, and I'm going to start doing some things through him. And that's, that's where the book of Genesis kind of where we're ending. Uh, because when you talk about the life of Joseph, and again, Joseph, Technicolor Dreamcoat, I don't know if you guys remember the stories. Um, I don't know where Technicolor came from. Was that a TV show? Maybe it was a, because it was multicolored. What was the old school Sunday school version? The what? The what? Many colored. That's what it was. Okay, yeah, I didn't go to Sunday school. So Joseph, many co- coat of many colors. I guess the Broadway version is Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's where I got that from. Uh, But in the life of Joseph, um, which the last 13, 14, 15 chapters of Genesis focus on his life. And it starts with pre-prison, right? Before he's in a prison, he's with his family, and they have a lot of dysfunction, as most families do. You don't have to raise your hand, but every family has some level of dysfunction. Why? Because we're all human. You know, we're all descended from Adam, so we're from Adam's family, the Adam's family, kooky and geeky and all that kind of stuff. Right? So every family has some level of dysfunction. And before his pre-prison time, family dysfunction, brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. You know, his father had a favorite son, which you shouldn't do, because then obviously that's going to cause some dissension in the family. And then when he gets to the next phase of his life, he spends part of it, a small part, in a pit where his brothers throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. And then he ends up working in a household in Egypt, um, and imagine if you could, uh, I don't know how many of you have ever traveled outside of your home or been away from your home for maybe college or on a mission trip, but imagine if you go to bed one night, next morning you wake up, your family members are dragging you, they throw you in a pit, and then they sell you to somebody in Romania or Thailand or even worse, Canada, right? They sell you to some foreign country. No offense, Canada, sorry. Sell you to some foreign country. Uh, You have no way of getting home. And then while you're working there, you end up in prison because you're falsely accused of either stealing. In this case, he was falsely accused of, um, well, more than hitting on, of sexually abusing the spouse of the person he worked for. I'll just leave it there. Uh, And then from there, um, he spends uh, the better part of his adult life in prison. And at the age of 30, he goes from prison to this place of provision, where he's providing not just for the people of Egypt, because he's named in charge of the entire nation, but also he's able to provide for his family and provide a resource where God grows the 70, I think 75 members of his family into a nation that when you get to the book of Exodus, numbers anywhere between a million and a million and a half people. 
And a lot of theologians, they look at this and they say, this is just like the life of Jesus Christ because Jesus, first, he has this, you know, life that we hear very little about. Then, you know, he does the ministry, but then he is beaten, uh, he's abused, he's beaten to a pulp, and then he dies. But then later he's resurrected and he's brought to this place where because of his resurrection, he provides a way for all of humanity to be in community with God and removes this thing that separated us, starting in the book of Genesis, from humanity, and that's sin because of what he did. So um, we're going to pick it up there where kind of Joseph is appearing before Pharaoh. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 41. If you don't, there's one under the chair, left, right of you somewhere. And in Genesis chapter 41, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, someone will bring to you. Uh, Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. When two full years had passed, and the two full years or two full years after, uh, when Joseph was in prison, he was there with a baker and a cupbearer, someone who was basically uh, a cupbearer, someone who was supposed to taste the drinks and the food before Pharaoh did to make sure nobody was killing him. Think of it as a bartender. I'm going to make sure the best drink, make sure there's no poison in it. Uh, and he, they had dreams, and Joseph said, here's what your dreams mean. And he said, one of you guys is going to end up dead. The other guy is going to end up out of prison, back serving Pharaoh again. And the next day, one ended up dead. And the other guy ended up back serving Pharaoh again. And he said, when you go serve Pharaoh, don't forget to tell Pharaoh about me because I'm in here and I was falsely accused. I did nothing wrong. And the guy says, yeah, I got you. This happens and I get out. I'll tell you. He gets out. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 41. Two full years had passed since that happened. And then Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, and out of the river there came seven cows, sleek and fat. They grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile, stood beside those on the riverbank. The cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again. He had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up, and he realized this had been a dream. And in the morning, his mind was troubled. <coughs> Excuse me. So he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. He told them their dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. So basically what he does is he says, hey, I'm having this dream. I can't get it out of my head. I'm going to call all, you know, this think tank for the nation. All you guys come here. What does this dream mean? And they're like, we don't have a clue. And then the cupbearer says, dude, I served time with a guy who interpreted dreams. I forgot to tell you. And he interpreted my dream, and he's good because he said I was going to get out of prison, uh, and the next day I was out of prison. And so drop down to verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was quickly brought from the dungeon, which, again, this wasn't a federal prison. There weren't any work release programs. He wasn't cleaning on the side of the road. There was no watching Oprah on TV, no chess games. This was a dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. In verse 16, this is key. He says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And throughout consistently uh, in his time in the prison when he was enslaved, all of this time he's been focusing on God. And he, his brothers threw him in a pit when he was 17, 
it's at the age of 30 that he appears before Pharaoh. And then what God reveals is that there's going to be, he says, God reveals through Joseph, there's going to be seven years in Egypt of, like, plenty, of, like, everyone's going to make money, like, the homeless people will be homeless on streets of gold. It will be so plentiful for everyone. For seven years, so much food, so much abundance, you're not going to be able to believe it. That's what God reveals to Pharaoh through Joseph. That's what the dream is. But then he says it's going to be followed by seven years so harsh, so extreme, that people are going to literally starve to death in this prosperous nation. Not like in the projects, not out in the rural areas, but in the city, in the streets, everywhere, it's going to be bad. And then jump over to verse 33. After he reveals that, this is what Joseph says. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land, take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. He says, hey, if we're going to have seven years of good time, then what we need to do is have, like, collect from everybody. This is literally a tax. Collect from everybody a fifth or 20% of everything they make and hold on to that so when we're going through the seven lean years, we'll be able to say, hey, I know you're hurting, but here, we have to give back to you. We have an abundance we can provide for the people. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Now, Pharaoh, because of the Egyptians, uh, they worship multiple gods. And to be perfectly honest, the way their culture was, whoever was Pharaoh at the time, or what we would think of as the king or ruler, was considered almost a god, godlike, right? And their thought process was, hey, there's a god of rain, there's a god of, you know, fertility, there's a god of grain, there's a god of birth, there's a god of this, there's a god of that, and the person who's governing all the people represents that god and their godship. But what Pharaoh does is he doesn't become like a god follower and believe in Joseph's god, but he acknowledges, hey, your god, because he uses the same word, that Joseph used when he said, God will reveal this to you, your God, Elohim, he says, that God, his spirit, is in you. In other words, we may have different religions, but I cannot deny what just happened. I cannot deny that God just did something through you in your life. Verse 39, and Joseph, excuse me, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to you and your orders. Only with subject to the throne will I be greater than you. So he makes Pharaoh literally the first prime minister. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with because we don't have that kind of system here. But if you think about in England, anyone watch The Crown? I watch a lot of TV. Okay, so on The Crown, there's, there's the, the queen, and it's Queen Elizabeth, who is awesome, by the way. There's, I mean, if you, it, it's not my action oriented thing, but it's good, all right? So in her, the way that it works is she's the queen. She is in charge of all of their empire at the time, because it was big then, not so much now, uh, all of their empire. 
And she is also the religious head of the church. Kind of same thing as Pharaoh. Hey, not God, but I'm in charge religion-wise. I'm in charge. It's my nation to rule. But the prime minister, it's his role to govern the people. So she's still queen in charge of everything, but the prime minister is in charge of governing the people, carrying out the rules and all that kind of stuff. That's what they do with Joseph. And historically, if you look, this is kind of like the first time that type of government comes into being. Where Pharaoh says, you, you're in charge of taking care of governing all the people. There is no one higher than you except me because I'm Pharaoh. I'm the king. And what we see is that throughout, the, <coughs> excuse me, throughout that, God is executing his plan, right? Because his plan was that, hey, I'm going to take the family of Jacob and his 12 tribes, and I'm going to, through you, create this nation, descendants that are going to cover the earth, that are going to know my name, that are going to know who I am, and that are going to share my love with everybody else. That kind of came to a halt because 10 of the brothers took one and sold him into slavery. And whenever God tries to do something, whenever God uh, provides for his people, it's always carefully planned out. Because even this, uh, uh, and a lot of people say, you know, I need a job, I need this, I need money, I need whatever. Why isn't God acting like this? Because we want something, we want it like this. Uh, But God works through people, and maybe not you, but most people like me, we're stubborn. We don't always do what God wants. We don't always obey God's will. We don't always follow the plan that God has. But God still has a plan, and he still works it out, even when there are people or individuals or even an enemy uh, that comes against it. And this is what happens next. In Genesis chapter 42, uh, you can look up here. I'm going to put the rest of the verses on the screen because I'm going to be going kind of quick. Genesis 42 When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, now, here's why he learned that, because the seven years had passed, seven years of abundance, right? Then they get into this time where they're, like Joseph, just as Joseph has said, uh, there's no food, people are starving, uh, and it's not just in Egypt, it's throughout the land, because they're a few hundred miles away in Canaan, but when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So the youngest son, Benjamin, stays. He sends the ten other sons. They go down there, and they meet Joseph, because he's in charge of distributing this food that he's collected during the seven years of abundance. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Anyone have family that you haven't seen for a few years? And then you're like, oh, my gosh, you've grown, or you look different, or is that you, or, or whatever. Uh, but here's the, it wasn't just that he'd grown, because 17, last time they saw him, now he is, it's been 30 when he appeared before Pharaoh. There's been seven years of, of abundance, 37, and now two years of, like, no food whatsoever. So now he's 39, and it's the 2,241, 41st year after creation, but he's also, he's working in an Egyptian land, so he's got the Egyptian makeup on. So they made eyeliner cool before, like, millennials did, but he's got the Egyptian eyeliner on. And then he's got, I don't know if he had a man bun or not, but he's got the Egyptian robes, and he's speaking Egyptian. So when they show up, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. 
And he's like, oh, my gosh, these are my brothers. And although he should have been angry at them, because now he had the power to say, like, off with their heads, he doesn't. He welcomes them, but he's going to test them. He says, I want to know if you guys are still the mean-spirited, angry guys who threw me into a pit and sold me into slavery. So what he does is he takes a, like a goblet, a cup, he hides it in their bag, he sells them the grain they want, they go back to their father Jacob, but then he sends one of his servants after them and said, hey, you guys stole a cup. And they're like, we didn't steal a cup. And so they come back, they go through their stuff, and there's the cup. And he tells them, hey, you know what? I think you guys are spies. So here's what I'm going to do. You said that you had a, a younger brother at home. I mean, that's a weird thing to make up, right? So bring back that younger brother, and I'll believe you weren't spies, and we'll let this whole thing go. And part of that is because he wanted to see his younger brother. Because uh, Jacob had four sister wives things going on, and uh, Joseph and Benjamin were the only two from Rachel. So they go back to their father, Jacob, and this is his response. Jacob said, my son, he's talking about Benjamin, will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, referring to Joseph, because he thought he was dead. He is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. He says, there's no way I'm sending my last son with you. Now, here's the harsh thing, uh, and this is harsh for me. Um, because, I don't know, if, if, imagine this. How many of you have, if you have more than one child, you don't want to send, and you think one is lost, you've lost one, however, accident, cancer, whatever, and you don't want to send another one away. But they left another son in prison because Joseph said, hey, you guys go bring back Benjamin. I'm going to keep one of you here as collateral. And his name was Simeon. They left Simeon in prison, and while they left him in prison, they didn't go back immediately. It says, then Joseph could no longer, sorry, I skipped a verse, uh, control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. They left Simeon in prison for a cup. Well, it doesn't give us exactly how long until they needed more food. Then they sent, they went back to get him. And Joseph did the same thing. They brought Benjamin. Uh, he put the cup in Benjamin's thing, and his thing was, I want to see if you guys have changed. Because his thought was, hey, they're going to sell out Benjamin like they sold me out. And when they left, he sent and said, hey, you guys stole another cup. They brought him back. They found it in Benjamin's thing, and this is what he said. He said, hey, all of you guys are free to go. Benjamin's going to jail, and he's going to pay the penalty. All you guys don't have to pay. His thinking was, these are the same brothers that sold me out. They're going to say, okay, see you, Benjamin. Sucks to be you, and leave. Instead, each and every brother said, keep me. Let Benjamin go. I'll pay the penalty. Even though, as far as they could tell, you know, Benjamin is the one who did it. And this is where Joseph lost it. He couldn't control himself. He cried out. He kicked everyone out of the room, and he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. That weeping, it wasn't, you know, weeping because, hey, I'm, I'm. it was basically weeping because you guys are starting to get it. You're starting to act like 
loving. You're starting to change. You've changed your behavior from however many years ago when you put me in prison. And then he says this. This is what happened. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Now, I don't know about you, but if you did something really harsh to a sibling, caused them to go to jail, and then they show up at your place of work, you'd be kind of shocked too. And not only that, but Joseph now, there's also the language barrier because he was previously speaking Egyptian to them through an interpreter. So they're still kind of shocked. This can't really be Joseph. But either way, it's this figure, this government figure of a foreign land saying, hey, I know what you did to your brother. That's kind of going to jar you a little bit. And then this happens. We're going to wind down with this. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And two reasons that theologians say why he said that. One is because the language. He wanted to make sure, hey, now I'm speaking Hebrew to you. I'm not speaking Hebrew to you with an Egyptian accent. It's Hebrew. I want to make sure you hear it. The other reason is because, and I'm don't find a clean way to say this, there was only one thing that separated Israel men from every other man on the planet. They were circumcised. And I'm trying to find a decent way to say this. So what most theologians believe is the reason he said come closer is because they wore Egyptian robes. They didn't have on like the whole, you know, sweatproof undergarments like us. And literally, Joseph would have been the only other person on the planet at that time who was circumcised. So they believed in order to prove, hey, I'm Joseph, he showed them he was circumcised because no, it, it wasn't a health thing like it is today. It was a religious practice in keeping with God's commandments. And the only people who would have been circumcised were in the family of Jacob. And then after that, he says, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves uh, for selling me here. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine on earth. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father of the Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all Egypt. And then he says, now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in a region of Goshen. Be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And what we are reading is literally what you read when you read that verse, Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things, even the bad things. God did not send him there. God didn't tell the brothers, go beat your brother, throw him in the pit, sell him to this group of people so he'll end up in Egypt. But God allowed it to happen because God's plan was to preserve them. And God used what they did for a greater glory. Now, uh, here's the thing. He says, I'm going to provide for you because five years of famine, there's still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. In other words, if God had not allowed that to happen, that family would have ceased to exist. And even though it had to go through a harsh way and it wasn't God's will that it go through that harsh way, it did go through a harsh way in order to allow God's plan of provision 
to come to fruition because whenever God provides, it's carefully planned out, but it only works when you have people who are willing to receive God's plan and repent from God's plan. In other words, when and this is part of the, like, why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? We're the biggest reason that God isn't able to do what he wants to do. Now, I'm going to jump to uh, a passage of scripture really quickly. Because the way the book of Genesis ends is not focusing on that whole piece, but focusing on forgiveness. Reuniting that family, bringing them back together. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. And this time he wasn't crying out of emotion like I love my brothers. He was crying. This is 17 years later when Jacob died. Jacob was in uh, the land of Egypt for 17 years. So 17 years later, he dies. Joseph is crying because his brothers didn't get it. That he had already forgiven them. And that as he had probably drilled into them over a 17-year period, thank God, God allowed you guys to do what you did. Because otherwise, this family would not exist. He didn't hold any animosity towards them. He wasn't angry towards them. In fact, he says and reiterates again, his brothers then came, they threw themselves down before him, where your slaves, they said, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your children and reassure them. And the way that the book of Genesis ends is with God providing for his people, redeeming his people, reuniting his people, Focus on forgiving all people. And that's what Jesus Christ does for us. That's why they call this a type. Joseph is a type of Jesus. Because even though he went through a lot, even though he went through a horrible, horrible, painful encounter, when God raised him up to a position, it was to provide for the people. It was to make sure that they continued, but it was also to provide a level of forgiveness between those people. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to pray, and then we're going to take communion and, and end uh, with taking communion. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. God, we pray that out of everything that we've not just heard this morning, maybe the things that we've heard before about this account, maybe the focus may have been on the technicolor or the many-colored coat, but we pray that we understand the focus is on what you did, the circumstances that you allowed to happen in order to redeem people and provide forgiveness for people as you provided for people. That's the heart of the way this account ends. And we pray that as we take communion, that we acknowledge, again, what you did for all humanity. 
the sacrifice that Jesus Christ went through for all humanity, the redemption that is available to all humanity, and the forgiveness of sins that is provided for all humanity. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers, can you guys come up and uh, grab this and grab the uh, communion elements out of the office? And while they do, uh, I just want to share a quick verse of scripture. Because when Paul writes about communion, he says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I know uh, today in the church, uh, this is considered one of the most sacred sacraments of the taking of communion, but it wasn't intended as something that we do every single time. Like, you have to have music, you have to have a reading of scripture, you have to have prayer, and you have to have communion. It was considered a passionate, intimate act of acknowledging, one, everything that Christ went through for us. Two, the blood that he shed for us, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And three, as Paul said, that he's coming back for us. That when we take communion, we're supposed to remember the forgiveness that's provided to us, but also remember that God is coming back for us. And so for some of us, maybe right now, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but maybe this is a time for you to either do some business with God, or maybe just, if you haven't yet entered into that relationship, say, God, hey, I want to know and experience that level of forgiveness, or maybe it's a time to just pray, hey, God, I do want to take communion because I just want to celebrate and rejoice in the forgiveness that you offered to me. So I'm going to ask you guys to come up, and the way that we do it, is that, uh, and they didn't break that level of bread, they broke a more matzah bread, but this is America, so we do it the American way. Uh, as you feel led, uh, just I'm going to ask you to come up and partake of communion, and then when we're done, we'll close out with a time of prayer.